And the VCs were pretty much trying to not fund anything. They were very scared, very terrified. And, you know, B2B seemed safer to them because at least they knew there's some businesses that would buy things if you made things for them. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. I am your host, Charlie Shrem, and you're listening and watching another epic episode of The Charlie Shrem Show, powered by Untold Stories. And I'm really excited today because we get to have on another amazing, amazing guest, Mark Jeffrey, who I'm going to introduce in a second. But it's a treat because we've been trying to get the show together for a while. Mark, like myself, you make films, you podcast, you start amazing Fortune 500 companies, you do it all, but at the same time, you're also an educator and you've been in the space a really long time. Before I get into it, to my listeners, thank you guys for continuing to listen and be loyal, loyal listeners. As you know, we're doing this ad-free for a while. Enjoy the holiday season. But I will say, please leave a review. Hit that subscribe button. It makes sure that we get into the charts that we need to get in and that more people see the show and it continues to, to grow. But Mark, good morning. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hello, Charlie. Thank you for having me. I know it took us took us a couple of tries to get here, but we finally we finally did it. <laughs> I, I, uh, how are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling good. I'm. Thank you for asking. How about yourself? It seems like this is the season where everyone's getting sick again lately. But like you know, it's almost like it's not COVID, or I don't want to test, or like what's the point if you're sick or if it's COVID or not? What's the point? You're still staying home. Do you notice that? And I don't know if this is true or not. Maybe it's my observation. But do you notice that? people take being sick a little more seriously than they did five or six years ago? Well, yeah, I mean, I think everyone's sort of relationship with illness changed dramatically in 2019, 2020, right? Because, you know, we'd, we'd never had a worldwide pandemic, at least in, our, in living memory. And um, yeah, I, I think, you know, when you when you get a sniffle, you're like, oh my God, is this the thing? Versus <laughs> oh, just a sniffle, right? So, yeah. Is this the thing? Is this the thing? Do I have it? Lip an outcast unclean, unclean. No. Right? Am I it's, that now? Like, you know, so, I mean, I mean, look, we didn't know. I mean, now, now I think, we, you know, in, in, in hindsight, we know that, you know, it's got a 99.9% .9 survival rate, but we didn't know that looking forward, right? That it looks scary. So, so yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a scary thing. And one of the things a lot of people did was start to take up like new hobbies and have different types of relationships. The world was getting to a really scary place, but it seems like it's opening back up again. Same thing with crypto winter, Bitcoin bear market that we've been going through over the last, I don't know, like year, year or so. But it seems like, especially on this show and on your show and, and some of the other really positive ones, we're focusing on like, what are people building now? Where are the users interacting? Like, what are they doing? Because like, it's not that all of a sudden we had hundreds of thousands of millions of millions of crypto folk around the world using our technology and playing around with their apps. And so it's not like they just disappeared overnight but the media will make people believe that that's the case. So I'm looking forward to talking to you and seeing like what people are doing and where everyone's at. I just want to like give a little bit of, of an intro. You're, you're an award-winning serial entrepreneur and author with HarperCollins. You're currently working on the Boolean Fund. You were one of the first authors to podcast a book. Your, your first novel, the Max, the Max Quick series, The Pocket and the Pendant, received over two and a half million downloads in 2005. Wow. 18 years ago, you were podcasting. Shit. Didn't even know yeah. that was a thing. Yeah. Was, yeah. Well, it was just the beginning of it being a thing, right? It was, it was pretty early on. So yeah, it was, uh, yeah, I basically had written a novel sort of in between companies because uh, I'd always wanted to do that. And I finally had a little bit of free time and some money. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do it now. 
And then after I wrote it, I was like, how do I get this published? And uh, I had a friend who actually was Michael Crichton's editor. And uh, and he told me, look, you got to get an agent and then you got to get a publisher. And then it takes like another year for it to go out. And each one of those steps was a year. So it was, it was three years minimum before it would get published. Right. And I, being an, being an internet guy, I'm like, that's, that is not acceptable. Like, I don't know. I don't know what the path forward is, but it's not that. And so I tried a bunch of things that didn't work bottom line. And, uh, and I had a friend, uh, who had just gotten into podcasting suggest, Hey, you should podcast it. And I will plug your, I will plug it on my show. And I was like, what's a podcast. And he explained the whole thing to me. And, uh, so I, I, I leapt in, I just did it and it took off pretty well at first, but where it really took off was Apple put podcasting support into iTunes in the summer of 2005. I started my serialized podcast in February of 2005. So by the time Apple had released it, I was one of the only free books on earth that, you know, was, was available to download for free. It was me and like two other folks. So, uh, I mean, that did help. When you get an agent, do you have to write a treatment first or kind of convince the agent that what you're writing is even worth them selling? Well, what, by the time I got it, so I couldn't get an agent. I tried getting it, you know, before the podcast. When the podcast went big and got, you know, 2.3 million downloads, some famous people listened to it. So Abigail Breslin, the actress who was in Little Miss Sunshine and a bunch of other things now, she called it out in a national interview as one of her favorite books. And so I had, I sort of had these, uh, these testimonials plus the audience pre-built in that allowed me to get the agent, which then allowed me to get the Harper Collins book deal. So that was, that was the sequence of events. I did not have to write a treatment for the agent. So that's where I'm personally struggling. I've been writing this treatment for like the past four years. I can't seem to figure out how to do it the right way, but maybe podcasting the book, like writing, writing the story and then taking it like chapter by chapter as audio form could be a good idea. I mean, everyone wants to be an author, I feel like, because it's almost like getting a PhD to be able to have something that you wrote and out there. But at the same time, as like a medium, this medium is a lot friendlier to the ear. I mean, I love reading too. I guess I love doing both. It's interesting. Some subjects you want to listen to, but some subjects you want to read. The podcast audiobook was sort of a new format, and there were, there were many interpretations of how to do it back back when we started the straight read you know just do it like an audiobook like you would buy at audible.com is one approach other people that were sort of my peers were doing radio plays of their books right so they hired actors to read the read the parts of all the different characters in the book and some people put bed music oh, in behind a straight read yeah so actually that's what i ended up doing so in retrospect probably the wrong answer because I, I think just the straight up audible read was you know, in, in retrospect, the way to go, but we didn't, we didn't totally know that at the time. You wrote a book in 2013 called Bitcoin Explained Simply. And then in 2015, the case, the case for Bitcoin and most newcomers to the space will see your books and they'll read it. They'll, they'll find your YouTube channel, listen to your podcast. Do you, I want to pick up a question that one of, kind of one of the first big questions that I've been thinking about. I want to pick it up from, from a previous episode and continued conversation that I've been having because you're in a very unique position that not a lot of people are in. You're a Bitcoiner, but you're living in an increasingly crypto world. And, and I love when I have a guest who is like an OG like yourself, I like to ask that question. How do you reconcile that on a day-to-day -day basis and continue to work in the space? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of people who, you know, there's definitely the, the religious camps of uh, of crypto. There's the Bitcoin people. 
the fundamentalists, if you will, and uh, and sort of all the other pagans that are doing other coins and other things. And I love Bitcoin, clearly. Uh, like when I first discovered it in 2013, I, I immediately got so excited about it. I sat and wrote that book in like about a week. And uh, and I threw it up on Amazon as fast as I could. I'm an engineer by training. And as you mentioned, I'm an author. So I felt I was in this unique position to deeply understand what I was seeing and express it to normies, right? So to basically explain the concepts and why this was so incredibly, incredibly important. As you know, sort of time moved on, Ethereum also was something I was excited about. I didn't write a book about it, but I was doing a podcast in 2015 called Bitcoin News Weekly. I did that for about a year and a half. And we had a whole bunch of people on that show. One of them was Vitalik oh, wow. about uh, three weeks or so before the Ethereum ICO. So he's explaining to me like what it is and what in, the concept of an ICO. And, uh, and I participated in that. I wish I'd put a ton more into it, but I did get in. So, you know, that was, it was still great. You know, since then, I've had a lot of conversations with people who are actually Bitcoiners. And some of them have, you know, each, each one of these people that have tried to do Bitcoin only projects ultimately always ends up creating another chain or mechanism on top of the Bitcoin to support stable coins and to support instant transactions of Bitcoins. There's just simply no way around it, right? So, and, and also to make the product consumer friendly with an instant onboard and a human readable crypto address to send the stable coins and Bitcoin back and forth to. A lot of people hold up Lightning as, as the solution, but Lightning needs, you know, you have to, so some, somebody has to give you an invoice. You can't just send crypto to someone on Lightning, right? You have to have an invoice sent and to you before you can up, respond yeah. to it. Your Bitcoin. Yeah. It, and it's not very consumer friendly, right? You can't, it's not like a normie can just get into it right away. You know, each one of these people, you know, in particular, I spoke with one recently and I'm spacing on the name right now. Uh, yeah, Bitcoin Libre, Bitcoin Libre. So when El Salvador decided to make Bitcoin, you know, one of their national currencies, well, some of my friends were like, oh my God, we should do a Bitcoin wallet that's consumer friendly. We have to take advantage of this opportunity. And they, they, their initial intention was to do a Lightning-based system and have an app that was downloadable and consumer-friendly. And they just couldn't make it consumer-friendly, just bottom yeah. line. And they couldn't have the instant onboard. They couldn't have the human-readable addresses. And so they ended up creating their own blockchain. And they also needed to uh, have a stable coin in there for a variety of reasons. And, and they just, they basically could not, they tried to skip, avoid this problem, but they couldn't. They had to create another blockchain to sort of encapsulate Bitcoin. And every every basically everything I've investigated has had that same problem. I'm the same way. I'm actively looking for that scaling Bitcoin solution that doesn't force me into a centralized choke point. Because that's exactly what you said. We have this beautiful decentralized blockchain network, this protocol that launched over 10 years ago. And the beauty of it, the beauty of Bitcoin is that you can have sent a transaction 10 years ago and it's... Everything that happens going forward, one of the, my favorite things, it's reverse compatible. So you don't need to like stay on top of the technology. You don't need to be worried about hard forking in your wallet and things like that, like Ethereum or some of these other blockchains do. And that was a big part of Bitcoin. And one of the, the biggest parts of Bitcoin was you, so you had this, this huge decentralized network. And of course, there's the mining aspect of it, although the hash rate centralization is a lot less of a problem than people actually think it is just on how Bitcoin actually works 
and I don't, we don't need to get too much into the technical, although we can, because a lot of people do want to understand this, but I just want to round out my thought. If we allow centralized choke points or centralized networks to touch Bitcoin, then Bitcoin will probably end up breaking. So one of the best things about Bitcoin is its inability or like the fact that it won't make any major changes because it's amazing for what it is. And, and as we've seen, almost every blockchain in the world, other than that, other than Bitcoin, like it's still in this experimental phase. And I think Bitcoin just constantly wants to move past its experimental. Bitcoin is version one. This is what it is. And everyone else can do what it wants to do. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, look, Bitcoin, you can't pay for gas using your Bitcoin because if you, you went to the gas station, you know, you'd be sitting there for 10 minutes waiting for your transaction to clear, right? That's yeah. just not acceptable as a consumer experience. So you have to put a wrapper around it. And I, I don't think, and you know, the Bitcoin Libre guys, it, it is a decentralized blockchain. They're trying to keep it as decentralized as possible while still putting another layer on top of Bitcoin. So their, their blockchain is based on EOS, which, you know, say what you want about EOS. There's yeah, some there's some good there, stuff so. with, with, all, with all these chains. Like I have another one that we, like Mint yeah. Layer, we invested in and they, they're probably one of the best solutions that I found too. There's there's a, there's like six or six, and there's probably room for over a dozen. And if those blockchains want to interact with Bitcoin, that's that's a great thing, and I think that's important. Do you think that Bitcoin as a protocol itself needs to open up at least like its endpoints to allow other blockchains to connect to it on like a protocol level? I don't even know if it's physically possible, just because of how fundamentally blockchains are built. Yeah, differently. I wouldn't mess around with it. I, you know, honestly, I think Bitcoin, Bitcoin is insanely good as the gold, right? So it's the gold layer. It's a little slow to move around, but it's a lot faster than real gold, right? 10 minutes is still pretty good, but it's not good enough for the cash layer. I would tend to not mess with it. Could you make it easier to wrap? Uh, you effectively have to wrap it. Like there's no other way around it in order to deal with it on a, in a second blockchain. Could that be made to be more secure? Well, the Bitcoin Libre guys are basically forget what they're using, but it's it, the idea is basically you you wrap the Bitcoin and you can see how much Bitcoin is on chain held in reserve to back the wrap tokens that are circulating on the new Bitcoin Libre network. And so far, that's worked pretty pretty well. So could that be better and more secure? I, I mean, I guess so, but I, I think it's good enough as it is. I agree. I agree a lot. And so at this point, we can extrapolate like what it means to be a Bitcoiner as more of like, not a religious topic, but more of like something worth discussing. Like what are those pillars that if we could launch other blockchains that way, or even fo follow life that way, I wonder if we can see eventually see being a Bitcoiner is more of like believing in something rather than loving a technology. I mean, I see it as a very practical belief in, you know, in hard money and in a better gold. And I, I and I think that's enough. I don't. I, that, that's a very, very, very big thing, and I think Bitcoin has achieved that, like very few things in history have. You know, it's up there with the, you know, with the printing press and the web browser and other great inventions. And I, I, th I think it's done its thing, and I don't, I don't, I don't think it needs to really do much other than keep doing its thing and protect itself against, you know, quantum coming down the pike yeah. and. You know, things like that. So I think it has to play defense, but I, I don't think it has to, I don't think it has to evolve very at all, really, beyond its functional capabilities that it has right now. And it's up to other layers to basically make it, make it accessible to consumers. I mean, 1% of all Bitcoin is wrapped Bitcoin and that so far has worked well. So I, I think it's okay.
before even the bankruptcies, we saw stable coins that were collapsing that were based on algorithmic different tokens. And then we saw the crazy cascading Celsius Voyager FTX drama. Are you looking at the time that we're in and looking at it as like a really good time for investing and building? Or are you still kind of nervous on the sidelines waiting to see kind of how the pieces will fall? Yeah, well, I think you've got two dynamics at play. One is the macroeconomic conditions, which are very frightening and very real and, and you know, basically are sort of dragging everything on Earth down. So I don't know how that's going to play out. Um, you know, the, the theory of the everything bubble, I think, is pretty real. And I, I think, you know, pretty much fiat currencies around the world have been inflated to death. So I, I, I do feel like there's some reckoning coming for that that's still not here. But leaving that aside for a moment, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I did a few things before this. You know, I, I was around during the dot-com boom and subsequent bust. And basically, that was $7 trillion worth of venture capital money that inflated a market pretty hugely in the late 90s. And there was some great stuff in there, and there was a lot of garbage, just just like crypto, right? When that all fell apart in 2000 or so, there was a period of about four or five years where the, the common prevailing wisdom was the consumer internet was all BS. That was a pipe dream that we should have never invested in. And the only real serious thing you should be doing with the internet is B2B. And you could not raise money for a company unless you were B2B. Uh, and even then, it was it was pretty difficult. Meanwhile, in that same time period, LinkedIn was founded, Facebook was founded. A lot of the great companies that basically became the bellwethers later were founded in that trough when everybody was asleep, right, on B2C. And these were B2C companies, all of them. Well, the one, the, the big ones that I'm talking about anyway. So this is actually usually the best time to build something and get ready for the next big wave which is much, 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 much larger than the wave that preceded it. If this were a normal economic time without the macro conditions overshadowing, I would say for sure that, that this, is, this is the best time in history to build in crypto because we, we, have a, we have a whole bunch of infrastructure, some of it banking, some of it legal, some of it technical, that has been built out over the last 10 years. And, we, and it is in an incredible shape compared to where it was even just a few years ago you know, we can take advantage of in the next bull run. And um, all of that said, I still think right now is a great, great, great time to build. And uh, I would encourage anyone who has an idea, get going on it, because right now is the best time, probably the best time in history. It's funny because because there's like a running joke in the, the crypto VC world or whatever, where it's like, yeah, just if you're pitching your company right now, just keep using the word enterprise and infrastructure. Right. And, <laughs> and I, yep. I was, I was coaching one of our entrepreneurs. He's a sweet, sweet guy and English isn't his first language. And so he was pitching really big VC fund and like throwing the word like enterprise in random sentences. He's like, <laughs> I love him. He's great. And, but it, by the way, it worked and it, it was very endearing. It was very endearing. And it actually went, when, if you're an entrepreneur, best thing you could do is just be so honest, like just be honest and and be endearing and be different and be passionate. And that's what we want to invest in. Yeah, and so our team is great. We, uh, we all came from different infrastructure places and enterprise, a lot of enterprise, different team members. <laughs> You're overdoing it. Yeah. Look, all the world's a high school, right? VCs are no different. And they, they, are, they all run around the little packs and whatever the hip thing is. 
you know, that's what they want to invest in. And then it changes and then they run somewhere else. So I, you know, look, it's, it's, yeah, you have, you have to pay attention to those trends because they are in, you know, it, it, because your investors pay attention to them. That's, that's why you have to pay attention to them. So, so yeah. Can you get a little more into what you were saying about the enterprise thing? Cause that's really unique. No one has ever given me that perspective before. So going back to the dot-com era, like post, like the fallout kind of where we are right now. And so people were looking at the internet. What, did everyone kind of view the internet as this like only enterprise thing? Is that where it was going? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's the weird thing that a lot of folks don't remember. Uh, but if you were there then and you were trying to raise money for something, you were basically told every, every VC just sort of had, they were, it was like they had a hangover, right? And it's it's like now, if, if I said I wanted to do an algorithmic stable coin, you'd, be, you'd, you'd feel like, you know, oh my God, are you serious? Right. You can't have just said that. Right. And 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 that's what the consumer Internet was to them. And um, and so they they just did not want to hear any pitches. There was too much pain. Remember, seven trillion dollars had been incinerated overnight. Right. Seven trillion. Right. The entire crypto market. I think it's been as high as as two or three trillion, something like that. You know, it's 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 the amount of incineration that's gone on in crypto has been bad. But it's probably about one seventh of what happened during the dot com boom and bust. And the VCs were pretty much trying to not fund anything. They were very scared, very terrified. And, you know, B2B seemed safer to them because at least they knew there's some businesses that would buy things if you made things for them. The B2C thing was just radioactive. So if you had a B2C play, you he he had to either bootstrap it or you had to um you know or or you had to have raised before enough money to live through the, the winter and the winter was very long it was four years and it just felt like death it felt like startups were never going to happen again like it and 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 the internet was a lot of a lot of people a lot of people that were not in the internet in LA that uh, watched all of us get a lot of fame and fortune after we all fell they were like running around saying oh the dot bomb right. Like you got your just reserve oh desserts for messing around with for trafficking with the wicked, right? That pipe the dream dot internet bomb thing. era. Exactly what? Like yeah, the dot bomb era, right? It, which is very much like the vibe in, of, of yeah. crypto today, right? Where people are like, "No, you trafficked in dog points. <laughs> you got your just dessert, right?" And 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 we're seeing the same vibe now, right? Everybody's going, "Oh my god, it's about business, B two B," and uh, you know, it's and I'm laughing because I'm like, I've seen this era before. The correct answer in this era is to do B2C and to do it better than anybody else and to just not listen to anybody and keep plowing forward. Well, then what changed? Like, what was it just a natural thaw? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to remember what sort of thawed everything out. I mean, social networks were one thing that started taking off. Um, I did, I in this period, so what did I do? In 2002, I started a company with some friends called Zero Degrees, and that was a business social network. It's a LinkedIn competitor. We were about six months behind them. We didn't know they existed when we started. Uh, While we were building our our product, they came out of the gate and launched. And we were like, oh, crap. And But we didn't, you know, it wasn't really clear yet who was, you know, whether someone was going to be able to win this thing that quickly. Uh, We could not get funding. And we were up in Silicon Valley like every week. There weren't really any VCs in LA of note at that time. We were trying to raise from up north. We were trying to raise from... One of my partner's friends in India and Dubai, and we just couldn't, nobody could raise a cent. We couldn't raise a cent. And so I I basically knew someone inside of Interactive Corp IAC, 
Yeah, so we sold it to Barry Diller, bottom line, in 2004. We sold it in February of 2004, which is the same month Facebook was founded. Oh, so, uh, good timing. Yeah. So we sold it to IEC very early. Right. So we, we did, we did decently. Well, we, we made some money. Everyone thought we were geniuses for selling because nobody could sell anything, much less get funded. Right. So we had, we had an exit in the winter. So, yeah. So I think social networks were the first sort of green shoot out of the nuclear winter that had been going on for about four years. Uh, and then other things started following. So I don't remember the exact sequence of what sort of kicked us completely out of, you know, the winter, but, but social networks and the was reason definitely one there of them. Was the reason that social networks were so successful as like being the killer app, one of the killer apps for the internet is the reason that it was because you just simply couldn't have a social network, not on the internet. Like you can't have pigeon carrier news feeds. You know what I mean? Like you needed the internet was such a core fundamental part of a social network and relationship mapping that you simply couldn't have it any other way. And so people that are trying to like launch projects where it's just like, yeah, it's a web two thing, but we also use a blockchain. That's kind of the wrong direction in your opinion. Well, I think I can at least speak to the, the, okay. that time. All of us had sort of lost contact with each other. Cause remember we didn't have social networks. We didn't have Twitter. The way we networked was in real life. <laughs> and if that didn't exist and there were no events, right? Cause you know, nobody had any money. So nobody, you know, all the big, all the big parties and all this, all those monthly Venice interactive community get togethers that were all the rage, like E entertainment was sending cameras to in the, at the end of the the heyday and thousands of people were going to all of that just evaporated really? for several years. Yeah. Yeah. All those networking things. So there, there were some networking things that replaced it. There was the layoff lounge, the layoff lounge. but that was, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So I was my friend Kelly Perdue who did that, uh, who was also a winner of season two of The oh, Apprentice. Cool. And uh, yeah, so he so he was producing these things. That was just kind of his gig for a while. It, it was okay, but it was sort of depressing because it was the layoff lounge, right? It wasn't the, the go-go awesome yeah. lounge, <laughs> right? But it was better than nothing. Really what was happening was uh, we had all lost contact with each other. And the first sort of business social network that sort of popped up was a thing called Rise, R-Y-Z-E done by a guy named Adrian Scott. And Rise was the very first time we saw a social network as we see them today. So there had oh. been previous attempts to build social networks, Six Degrees, and there are a few other things. But, you know, the profile with the, the, the photo in the upper left-hand corner, the friends list, like inviting your friends, that whole thing was pioneered. That UI that, that we see today, the first person to do it was Adrian Scott with Rise. And so a lot of us got onto Rise and started reconnecting. It was like, hey, what's up, yeah. friends? What are you doing? And we started talking to each other again for the first time in years. And and all of a sudden, you know, once we were talking to each other, then we started meeting up in real life. So that was, you know, when I did Zero Degrees, I, you know, I pretty much looked at Rise and copied that. Because <laughs> I'm like, well, it's been, it's been done well once. And we added some other things on top of it that Rise didn't have. But that was sort of the, that was the model. And, and everybody else basically copied that UI. So maybe now we're in this macro world. We're in this post-COVID pandemic world. No one really knows what the hell's going on or where the direction to, like, I think 2023 is the most, like, ambiguous year. People, like, we don't know what we're getting into. It's just, it could be great, it could be bad. But I think the expectations are, like, as long as it's not 2020, then maybe it'll, just, it'll be better because being stuck at our homes <laughs> suck. But are there things that are missing now that we could build with this beautiful technology that we have, blockchain technology, using core 
tenets of being a Bitcoiner that we talked about, those core decentralization, hard money, like those core tenants, but still you can use blockchain technology. Are there things that we can build now? Like I'm trying to rack my brain. Like I want to start a company. I want to, I want to be a, I want to come out of the ashes and be the next trillionaire or whatever. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't think, I, I just think we still have not really cracked the consumer wallet okay. yet, despite all of the attempts. And, um, you know, Bitcoin Libre has got a pretty good stab at it, but it's far from being the only approach, right? So, and and also providing DeFi rails from uh, fiat fiat to DeFi and, and back again, uh, which I still believe in DeFi quite a bit. And, and I think that, I think that will rise again also, but making all of that more accessible to consumers, it, it's really hard to do a good UI, right? Remember all the phones we had before the iPhone and how nobody got it right. Right. Yesterday, I was going through a product demo of one of the best software as a service NFT platforms I've ever seen. Honestly, like full on, you can pay 99 bucks, register, and then all of a sudden you can issue as many NFTs as you want. You can, if someone's holding your NFT, you can give them, you know, more if they retweet you. Like all these relationship interactions, like watching a video token gated, like full on, like I can give out a free NFT to everyone listening to the show and then put out exclusive content for the NFT holders that they need to log in and, and do. And it's all built, like I can do this tomorrow, but the UI sucks. It doesn't look good. Yeah, well, plus your users have to use MetaMask, right? The people that you- Yeah, nah, that's the other thing. They have to all, <laughs> everyone has to use MetaMask. Like, hello, Joe386 pack. Could you please download MetaMask? And can you please <laughs> send it to me, you know, send things to OX, blurp, blurp, bleep, blurp, 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 no. You want to send it to at Mark Jeffrey. I, that's where I want my crypto to come and go from, right? That that, that kind yeah. of stuff, that kind of stuff has not been done well yet. And it's, it's, I, I don't know why, but it's, it's just, I, it's just, it's hard to do, I guess. So that's why. I want to ask you a, a personal question because you do a lot, you do a lot, but you also maintain the quality. And I've struggled with that, right? I pers I won't take on new projects if I don't think I could maintain that quality that I'm kind of known for. And it's not like amazing quality don't give me there's no standard of excellence here but the charlie shrimp quality it's good it's good for me it's good for you but <laughs> how do you and the listeners want to know this too like how do you uh not spread yourself too thin like not enough cream cheese on a bagel um because i have done that before and i learned that lesson the hard way and learned it you know like le learn to basically just focus on one thing at a time and, and also i love what i'm doing while i'm you know while i'm doing it so I like doing it and I tend to just sort of work around the clock at whatever it is. You have I to do that. something you love. Like I say, I know it's an old trope, but it's just true. And whatever, whatever it is I'm up to at that moment, I'm very, 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 very interested in, in it and digging around. And right now, you know, the hash rate podcast is the, the, the thing I'm most interested in on, on my side right now, mostly because it allows me to talk to people who are building things. Right. And, and what I'm doing and basically hash rate is, it's me doing my own version of Jason Calacanis's This Week in Startups. Um, I'm just doing it for the crypto world and the DeFi world because that's that's what interests me. So, but it's it's really the same, it's the same playbook, right? I'm gonna publish a list of some of my other favorite podcasts in the space because I, I really believe that podcasters were we're the last independent media. You saw what happened with the Sam Bankman Fried calling up the New York Times and getting like puff pieces and the New York fucking Times. But that was insane. That won't happen. To, we're independent media. It's the podcasters that had SBF on who were successful. If you want to find out what really happened, 
There's two or three podcasters that had him on. Go listen to those shows. I love promoting other shows and I'm going to publish a list of some of my other favorite shows and, and you're going to be on there. I love doing that too. And, and at the same time, we were, I'm doing the show for four years and we've always been sponsored and I, you know, we've had some of the best sponsors and we've, you know, knock on wood, whether not having like FTX and some of the ones that have failed as sponsors, it's really hard to do due diligence. I'm a little bit nervous taking on new sponsors right now. One of the reasons that we're being ad free and I want to take this show in like a crazy direction where I, I can just kind of like try new things out without worrying about like not doing right by the sponsors. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with taking sponsors. I think it's fine. Yeah, um, you need you to. Know, I, you know, I had Mexi reach out to me, and I have a little deal going with them. Uh, and, you know, after after FTX collapsed and then, you know, the shitstorm began, you know, that, that that episode I did the read, I was like, and our sponsor, FTX, I think they're still solvent, but I'm not sure, but I think they are. Right. So I had that sort of fear as well. But look, you know, it's you can't you just you can't worry about that. Companies go to business every day. You just have to do. Just do the best you can and vet it the best you can. And, you know, it is what it is. Well, we, as an industry, we did the best we can. So let's like, when we talk about an industry is like the businesses, the podcasters, our self-regulatory body, our lobby groups. I feel like we were doing the best we can. And I'm trying to figure out how we missed the Terra Luna collapse, three arrows capital. Cause that really was like yeah. the first dominoes. Like, how did we not see that? I'm talking to myself here too. No, I saw it. Well, so... I will get so that, you know, I'm, I'm not free of mistakes, but the things I did well in sort of managing my own bags and bullion fund and all that, I looked at Terra Luna. I had a lot of voices in my ear telling me I was insane for not going deep on, on Luna. And they were like, oh my God, it's just going to keep growing, blah, blah, blah. And, and I told them I did not like it. And the reason I did not like it was it had a single point of failure in Luna, right? And I was like, look, if Luna drops for whatever reason, that's the thing, the only thing backing Terra and UST, the unwind could happen very quickly. Mm. And I don't like the single point of failure. It's a death star, right? Yeah, probably an X-Wing won't come down that trench and blow it up. But if one gets through, it could kill it. It's, it's a single point of failure. And I had been looking at other things like uh, Spell and, and MIM, and that was also backed by crypto assets, but it was backed by 30 of them, right? So if one of those assets went under for whatever reason, well, that sucks but it's 1.5x collateralized by 30 different assets so you you know now you have 29 and it's maybe 1.4x collateralized but it's still solvent yeah. right so it doesn't have a single point of failure and that and actually weirdly as luna unwound mim also unwound but it did it in an orderly fashion and was completely solvent the whole way down and re resurrected itself just fine its resiliency wow. was actually insane and it was massively tested because Doquan actually at one point during the whole Danny, I don't know if you remember the beginning of the year, the whole Wonderland Danny thing, Daniele uh, Sestigali, who's yeah. one of the founders of MIM. So that whole thing happened. And oh my uh, God, it never lost its peg. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. Yeah. Doquan pulled Shit. out all the liquidity. There had basically been a big curve pool with UST and MIM. And Doquan, once Daniele, you know, basically uh, had issues reputationally. Doquan was like, oh, I can't touch that guy anymore. And he pulled all the liquidity <laughs> out of curve, right? So just basically like yanking the chair out from underneath Daniele, uh, which should have killed Mim, right? Like that, that, that was a huge test. And it depegged to like 90 cents for a little while. And then it recovered and bounced back up. So that was a massive stress test, which Mim survived that, uh, you know, 
few months later, Doquan and UST did not survive, right? So how yeah. so how did how is MIM different then? So how how did MIM do it differently? Well, it's it's 1.5x collateralized, right? So it's over collateralized by 30 different yield bearing crypto assets. So you but you have to borrow MIM in order to get it, right? I mean, you can buy it on the open market, sure. but to, to create it, you have to borrow against one of these assets. So it's always over collateralized, uh, right? I see what yeah, you're so saying. So that's here. why, and it's over collateralized by 30 different assets. So it's true. So the odds of all 30 assets going under at the yeah. same moment are very low. I mean, it could happen, but it probably won't. But the rebalancing probably does a really good job. Yes. So and it, this is a story oh. that's been sort of lost in the in the in, in the muck of 2022. The, re the resiliency of MIM has actually been extraordinary. Um, and again, during this whole unwind, MIM got hit by a few things with FTX. And I, FTT was one of the collateral, I believe, that they accepted. And that became worthless overnight. And MIM still survived and dealt with it just fine. It's it's actually pretty astonishing how well it did, given the adversity. So anyway, so that's why I stayed out of Luna. FTX, I mean, that was vetted by Sequoia. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Supposedly. And I have my doubts about whether they actually did due diligence on it or not. My personal opinion is they probably didn't because the guy who did the unwind of Enron, who is now president, came in and said, of I have FTX, never, yeah. <laughs> ever seen anything like this. And basically his description indicates that if, if Sequoia had done just sort of minimal poking around, even if they were lying to him, you know, would have, there, there would have been discrepancies. You know, you would have surfaced something, I would I would think. So, I, I you know, look, I think Sequoia just sort of, you know, they, they were the ones who basically said, look, this is legit. And everyone else kind of piled in after that because we all just assumed Sequoia had done due diligence yeah, on them, right? They're Sequoia, right? Yeah, I want to, and and actually, that's another great tenant of what it means to be a Bitcoiner. So here, right there, Sequoia, that's the first example. Trust, but verify. So trust Sequoia, yeah. use that as a lead generation potentially, but go verify it on your own. That's what it means to be a Bitcoiner. I think that's like a very good, and another one, actually, I wrote it down. Now, like I was typing as you're talking. You said another one, single point of failure right there. Those are two pillars of what Bitcoin means for the rest of crypto. And so you can, you can be a crypto investor. You can build things on different blockchains, but follow those pillars, follow those tenants. Those are really important. And you could avoid getting caught with your pants down. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how we could have, you know, we, we can't go yeah. do due diligence on every company, right? Like. Like, you know, Sam would have never let us see his books if we asked, right? Sequoia theoretically could go see his books and actually do the due diligence. So I, I don't know how we solve that problem other than, you know, proof of reserves and, you know, no longer don't trust any centralized entities. I mean, I think I think we've all learned the extreme danger of centralized entities and the DeFi stuff performed excellently. You know, all of it, not just MIM. You know, I'm talking about things like Ave and, you know, et cetera. Yeah. DeFi was you know, the big winner of, of this DeFi whole thing. DeFi was the big winner. We've yeah, covered that, it, this. Yeah. It showed its quality, as they say in Lord of the Rings, right? It had a chance to show its quality, and it did. So, But the uh, UI still the sucks. Things that fell apart. The, Sorry, UI, the UI still sucks. Like yield farming, staking, borrowing, lending, all the cool things that you can do with crypto and DeFi, it's still impossible to, to do. Like it's like you said, Joe Sixpack, it's just going to be... Yeah, Joe you know. 386 pack. What you know what they want? They they're like, look, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know what this DeFi is, but here's my credit card. 
you tell me what percent, you know, I'm getting 20% APY or whatever it is. And I come back in six months and there it is. And it goes back into my credit card. That's all they want. And so and nobody, that was nobody the really skip. They wanted yeah. DeFi, but what they got was CeFi. But CeFi yeah. was supposed to be just an amalgamation of DeFi and take a little bit of extra fees. But it didn't. It's, it's CeFi got greedy somewhere. And that's kind of what the story will show down the road. Whatever. Nothing you can do. Only thing we can do is live and learn and look at the red flags and, and whatever. You've given us on this show so much advice and knowledge and data. Is there anything else? Is there anything you wish everyone knew? when you like started talking to them about crypto or whatever? I think a lot of people right now are kind of like, oh, that was just all BS. Very much the way, you know, people talked about the internet in the early 2000s. And you know, I, I just, you know, look, it's not BS. <laughs> you know, all this stuff is very, very real and very, very powerful. And, you know, the internet, the, the consumer internet was not just a pipe, was not just a fever dream. And, and this is not just a fever dream either. This is very hard technology. And it will rebound at some point in the very near future. Don't know exactly when. You know, the the, the macroeconomic picture will, will will either help crypto, okay, um, at, you know, by being the more sound money when sort of everything the wheels start coming off of everything else, or it won't. And every it'll the panic will just be so broad that everybody's selling everything. Doesn't matter whether it's crypto or your gold or whatever, right? So, and I, I just don't know which way all of that will go. Um, and of course, there's the possibility that it could all heal itself too. Like somehow the macroeconomic condition doesn't fall apart, although all all indicators are that we're headed for a wall. Uh, but you know, maybe 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 we'll reinflate the balloon again and kick the can down the down the road ten years somehow through some new financial contraption made of fiat. Right? Like we could do that. Could happen. <laughs> the financial contraption of fiat. I love that. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the show today. Just one more time. What's the name of your podcast so the listeners can can follow along? Yeah, the podcast is called Hash Rate. Um, the best way to sort of find it is follow me on Twitter, which is at Mark Jeffrey. And I'm always pinning, I'm always plugging the latest episode and pinning the latest episode to the top of my feed. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. 